Welcome to the Dead Author Society. Frank Herbert, February 11th, 1986. Rest in peace. Children of Dune Chapter 29 I agree. Stilgar nodded. Ollie is caught inside the circle, and every day the circle grows smaller. It's like our old custom of having many wives. This pinpoints male sterility. He bent a questioning gaze on Idaho. You say she deceived you with other men, using her sex as a weapon. It's the way I believe you've expressed it. Then you have a perfectly legal avenue available to you. Javid's here and to burr with messages from Alia. You have only two. On your neutral territory. No, but outside in the desert. And if I took that opportunity to escape, you'll not be given such an opportunity. Still, I swear to you, Ollie is possessed. What do I have to do to convince you of a difficult thing to prove? Stilger said. It was the argument he'd used many times during the night. Idaho recalled Jessica's words, said, But you've ways of proving it. Ah, way. Yes. Stilger said. Again, he shook his head. Painful. Irrevocable. That is why I remind you about our attitude toward guilt. We can free ourselves from guilt which might destroy us in everything except the trial of possession. For that, the tribunal, which is all of the people, accepts complete responsibility. You've done it before, haven't you? I'm sure the Reverend Mother didn't omit our history in her recital, Stilger said. You will know we've done it before. Ido responded to the irritation in Stilker's voice. I wasn't trying to trap you in a falsehood. It's just, it's the long night and the questions without answers, Stilker said. And now it's morning. I must be allowed to send a message to Jessica, Ido said. That would be a message to Salusa, Stilker said. I don't make evening promises. My word is meant to be kept. That is why to Burr's neutral territory, I will hold you in silence. I have pledged this for my entire household. Alia must be brought to your trial. Perhaps, first we must find out if there are extenuating circumstances of failure of authority, possibly, or even bad luck. It could be a case of that natural bad tendency which all humans share, and not possession at all. You want to be sure I'm not just the husband wronged, seeking others to execute his revenge. Idaho said, The thought has occurred to others, not to me. Stilger said, 
He smiled to take the sting out of his words. We Fremen have our signs of tradition, our hadith. We fear a mentat or reverend mother, we revert to the hadith. It is said that the only fear we cannot correct is the fear of our own mistakes. Lady Jessica must be told, Idaho said. Gurney says, that message may not come from Gurney Halleck. It comes from no other. We Atreides have our ways of verifying messages still. Won't you at least explore some of Jack Root, who is no more? Stilgris said. It was destroyed many generations ago. He touched Idaho's sleeve. In any event, I cannot spare the fighting men. These are troubled times, the threat to the Quanet. You understand? He sat back. Now, when Alia, there is no more Alia. So you say. Stilgar took another sip of coffee, replaced the cup. Let it rest there, friend Idaho. Often there's no need to tear off an arm to remove a splinter. Then let's talk about Ganema. There's no need. She has my continent, my bond. No one can harm her here. He cannot be that naive, Ido thought. But Stilker was rising to indicate that the interview was ended. Idaho levered himself to his feet. Feeling the stiffness in his knees, his calves felt numb. As Idaho stood, an aide entered and stood aside. Javid came into the room behind him. Idaho turned. Stilker stood four paces away. Without hesitating, Idaho drew his knife in one swift motion and drove its point into the breast of the unsuspecting Javid. The man staggered backward, pulling himself off the knife. He turned, fell onto his face. His legs kicked, and he was dead. That was to silence the gossip, Ido said. The aide stood with drawn knife, undecided how to react. Ido had already sheathed his own knife leaving a trace of blood on the edge of his yellow robe. You have defiled my honor, Stilker cried. This is neutral. Shut up. Ido glared at the shocked Neb. You wear a collar, Stilger. It was one of the three most deadly insults which could be directed at a Fremen. Stilker's face went pale. You are a servant, Idaho said. You've sold Fremen for their water. This was the second most deadly insult, the one which had destroyed the original Jokorutu. Stilker ground his teeth, put a hand on his Chris knife. The aide stepped back away from the body in the doorway. Turning his back on the neb, Ido stepped into the door, taking the narrow opening beside Javid's body, and speaking without turning, delivered the third insult. You 
have no immortality, Stilger. None of your descendants carry your blood. Where do you go now, Mintat? Stilger called as Idaho continued leaving the room. Stilger's voice was as cold as a wind from the poles. To find Jakarutu, Idaho said, still not turning. Stilger drew his knife. Perhaps I can help you. Idaho was at the outer lip of the passage now. Without stopping, he said, If you'd help me with your knife, water thief, please do it in my back. That's the fitting way for one who wears the collar of a demon. With two leaping strides, Stilker crossed the room, stepped on Javit's body, and caught Idaho in the outer passage. One gnarled hand jerked Idaho around into a stop. Stilger confronted Idaho with bared teeth and a drawn knife. Such was his rage that Stilger did not even see the curious smile on Idaho's face. Draw your knife, Mintat scum. Stilger roared. <laughs> Idaho laughed. He cuffed Stilger sharply. Left hand, right hand. Two stinging slaps to the head. With an incoherent screech, Stilger drove his knife into Idaho's abdomen, striking upward through the diaphragm into the heart. Idaho sagged onto the blade, grinned up at Stilger, whose rage dissolved into sudden icy shock. Two deaths for the Atreides. Idaho husked, the second for no better reason than the first. He lurched sideways, collapsed to the stone floor on his face. Blood spread out from his wound. Stilger stared down past his dripping knife at the body of Idaho. <sighs> Took a deep, trembling breath. Javid lay dead behind him, and the consort of Alia, the womb of heaven, lay dead at Stilger's own hands. It might be argued that Aneb had but protected the honor of his name avenging the threat to his promised neutrality. But this dead man was Duncan Idaho. No matter the arguments available, no matter the extenuating circumstances, nothing could erase such an act. Even if Alia were to approve privately, she would be forced to respond publicly in revenge. She was, after all, Fremen. To rule Fremen... She could be nothing else, not even to the smallest degree. Only then did it occur to Stilger that this situation was precisely what Idaho had intended to buy with his second death. Stilger looked up, saw the shocked face of Hara, his second wife, peering at him 
in an enclosing throng. Everywhere Stilker turned, there were faces with identical expressions. Shock and an understanding of the consequences. Slowly, Stilker drew himself erect, wiped the blade on his sleeve and sheathed it. Speaking to the faces, his tone casually said, Those who will go with me should pack at once. Send men to summon worms. Where will you go, Stilgar? Hara asked. Into the desert. I will go with you, she said. Of course you will go with me. All of my wife will go with me. And Ganima, get her Hara at once. Yes, Stilgar, at once. She hesitated. And Arulian. If she wishes. Yes, husband. Still, she hesitated. You take Gani as hostage. Hostage? He was genuinely startled by the thought. Woman. He touched Idaho's body softly with a toe. If this Mintat was right, I'm Gani's only hope. He remembered then. Leto's warning. Beware of Alia. You must take Ghani and flee. After the Femine, all planetologists see life as expressions of energy and look for the overriding relationships. In small pieces, bits, and parcels, which grow into general understanding, the Femine racial wisdom is translated into a new certainty. The thing Fremen have as people, any people can have. They need but develop a sense for energy relationships. They need but observe that energy soaks up the patterns of things and builds with those patterns. The Arakin catastrophe after Hak al Ada. It was Tuik's siege on the inner lip of false wall. Alex stood in the shadow of the rock buttress which shielded the high entrance to the siege, waiting for those inside to decide whether they would shelter him. He turned his gaze outward to the northern desert and then upward to the gray-blue morning sky. The smugglers here had been astonished to learn that he, an off-worlder, had captured a worm and ridden it, but Halleck had been equally astonished at their reaction. The thing was simple for an agile man who'd seen it done many times. Halleck returned his attention to the desert, the silver desert of shining rocks and gray-green fields where water had worked its magic. All of this struck him suddenly as an enormously fragile containment of energy, of life. Everything threatened by an abrupt shift in the pattern of change. He knew the source of this reaction. It was the bustling scene on the desert floor below him. Containers of dead sand trout were being trundled into the siege for distillation and recovery of their water. There were thousands of the creatures. They had come 
to an overpouring of water. And it was this outpouring which had set Halleck's mind racing. Halleck stared downward across the siege fields and the Quanet boundary which no longer flowed with precious water. He had seen the holes in the Quanet's stone walls, the rending of the rock liner which had spilled water into the sand. What had made those holes? Some stretched along 20 meters of the Quanet's most vulnerable sections, in places where soft sand led outward into water-absorbing depressions. It was those depressions which had swarmed with sand trout. The children of the Siege were killing them and capturing them. Repair teams worked on the shattered walls of the Quanet. Others carried minims of irrigation water to the most needy plants. The water source in the gigantic cistern beneath Tuik's wind trap had been closed off, preventing the flow into the shattered quanet. The sun-powered pumps had been disconnected. The irrigation water came from dwindling pools at the bottom of the quanet and laboriously from the cistern within the siege. The metal frame of the door seal behind Halleck crackled in the growing warmth of the day. As though the sun moved his eyes, Halleck found his gaze drawn the farthest curve of the quanet, to the place where water had reached most impotently into the desert. The garden hopeful planners of the siege had planted a special tree there, and it was doomed unless the water flow could be restored soon. Alex stared at the silly, trailing plumage of a willow tree, there, shredded by sand and wind. For him, that tree symbolized the new reality for himself and for Arrakis. Both of us are alien here. They were taking a long time over their decision within the siege, but they could use good fighting men. Smugglers always needed good men. Alec had no illusions about them, though. The smugglers of this age were not the smugglers who'd sheltered him so many years ago when he'd fled the dissolution of his duke's fee. No, these were a new breed, quick to seek profit. Again, he focused on the silly willow. It came to Halleck then that the storm winds of his new reality might shred these smugglers and all of their friends. It might destroy Stilger with his fragile neutrality, take with him all of the tribes who remained loyal to Alia. They'd all become colonial peoples. Halleck had seen it happen before, knowing the bitter taste of it on his own homeworld. He saw it clearly, recalling the mannerisms of the city Fremen, the pattern of the suburbs, and the unmistakable ways of the royal siege rubbed off even on this smuggler's hideaway. The rural districts were colonies of the urban centers. They'd learned how to wear a padded yoke, led into it by their greed, if not their superstitions. Even here, especially here, 
the people had the attitude of a subject population, not the attitude of free men. They were defensive, concealing, evasive. Any manifestation of authority was subject to resentment. Any authority, the regencies, Stilgers, their own council. I can't trust them. Halleck thought. He could only use them and nurture their distrust of others. It was sad. Gone was the old give and take of free men. The old ways had been reduced to ritual words. Their origins lost to memory. Alia had done her work well. Punishing opposition and rewarding assistance, shifting the Imperial forces in random fashion, concealing the major elements of her Imperial power. The spies. Gods below the spies she must have. Halleck could almost see deadly rhythm of movement and counter-movement by which Alia hoped to keep her opposition off balance. If the Fremen remain dormant, she'll win, he thought. The door seal behind him crackled as it opened. A siege attendant named Malides emerged. He was a short man with a gourd-like body which dwindled into spindly legs whose ugliness was only accented by a still suit. You have been accepted, Malid said, and Halleck heard the sly dissimulation in the man's voice. What that voice revealed told Halleck there was sanctuary here for only a limited time. Just until I can steal one of their thopters, he thought. My gratitude to your counsel, he said. He thought of Esmar Tuik, for whom this siege had been named. Esmar, long dead of someone's treachery, would have slit the throat of this Malides on sight. Any path which narrows future possibilities may become a lethal trap. Humans are not threading their way through a maze. They scan a vast horizon filled with unique opportunities. The narrowing viewpoint of the maze should appeal only to creatures with their noses buried in sand. Sexually produced uniqueness and differences are the life protection of the spices. The Spacing Guild Handbook. Why do I not feel grief? Alia directed the question at the ceiling of her small audience chamber. A room she could cross in ten paces one way and fifteen the other. It had two tall and narrow windows which looked out across the Iraqian rooftops at the shield wall. It was almost noon. The sun burned down into the pan 
upon which the city had been built, while he lowered her gaze to Buer Agarvis, the former Tabrite, and now a Dizia, who directed the temple guards. Agarvis had brought the news that Javid and Idaho were dead. A mob of sycophants, aides and guards, had come in with him, and more crowded the areaway outside, revealing that they already knew Agarvis's message. Bad news traveled fast on Arrakis. He was a small man, the Sagarvis, with a round face for a feminine, almost infantile in its roundness. He was one of the new breed who had gone to water fatness. Alia saw him as though he had been split into two images, one with a serious face and opaque indigo eyes, a worried expression around the mouth, the other image sensuous and vulnerable, excitingly vulnerable. She especially liked the thickness of his lips. Although it was not yet noon, Alia felt something in the shocked silence around her that spoke of sunset. Idaho should have died at sunset, she told herself. How is it, Puer, that you're the bearer of this news? She asked, noting the watchful quickness which came into his expression. Agarvis tried to swallow, spoke in a hoarse voice, hardly more than a whisper. I went with Javid, you recall. And when still sent me to you, he said for me to tell you that I carried his final obedience. Final obedience, she echoed. What do you mean by that? I don't know, Lady Alia. He pleaded. Explain to me again what you saw. She ordered. She wondered at how cold her skin felt. I saw. He bobbed his head nervously, looked at the floor in front of Alia. I saw the Holy Consort dead upon the floor of the central passage, and Javid lay dead nearby in a side passage. The women already were preparing them for Hunui. And Stilker summoned you to this scene. That is true, my lady. But Stilker summoned me. He sent Madibo, the bent one, his messenger in siege. Madibo gave me no warning. He merely told me Stilker wanted me. And you saw my husband's body there on the floor. He met her eyes with a darting glance returned his attention once more to the floor in front of her before nodding. Yes, my lady and Javid dead nearby. Stilger told me, told me that the Holy Consort had slain Javid. And my husband, you say Stilger, he said it to me with his own mouth, my lady. Stilger said he had done this. He said the Holy Consort provoked him to rage. Rage, Alia repeated. How was that done? He didn't say, 
No one said, I asked. And no one said. And that's when you were sent to me with this news? Yes, my lady. Was there nothing you could do? Agave wet his lips with his tongue. Then, Stilgar commanded, my lady. It was his siege. I see. And you always obeyed Stilgar. I always did, my lady, until he freed me from my bond. When you were sent to my service, you mean? I obey only you now, my lady. Is that right? Tell me, Briar. If I commanded you to slay Stilgar, your old nymp, would you do it? He met her gaze with a growing firmness. If you commanded it, my lady. I do command it. Have you any idea where he's gone? Into the desert, that's all I know, my lady. How many men did he take? Perhaps half the effectives. And Ganima and Arulian with him? Yes, my lady. Those who left are burdened with their women, their children, and their baggage. Stilgar gave everyone a choice, go with him or be freed of their bond. Many chose to be freed. They will select a new neb. I'll select their new neb, and it'll be you, Buera Agarvis, on the day you bring me Stilgar's head. Agarvis could accept selection by battle. It was a Fremen way. He said, As you command, my lady, what forces may I... Cezia, I can't give you many thopters for the search. They're needed elsewhere, but you'll have enough fighting men. Stilgar has defamed his honor. Many will serve with you gladly. I'll get about it then, my lady. Wait. She studied him for a moment, reviewing whom she could send to watch over this vulnerable infant. He would need close watching until he'd proved himself. Sia would know whom to send. Am I not dismissed, my lady? You are not dismissed. I must consult you privately, and at length on your plans to take Stilgar. She put a hand to her face. I'll not grieve until you've exacted my revenge. Give me a few minutes to compose myself. She lowered her head. One of my attendants will show you the way. She gave a subtle hand signal to one of her attendants, whispered to Shalis, her new dame of chamber. Have him washed and perfumed before you bring him. He smells of worm. Yes, mistress. Alia turned then, feigning the grief she did not feel, and fled to her private chambers. There, in her bedroom, she slammed the door into its tracks, cursed, and stamped her foot. Damn that Duncan. Why, why, why? She sensed a deliberate provocation from Idaho. He'd slain Javid and provoked Silver. It said he knew about Javid. The whole thing must be taken as a message from Duncan, Idaho. Final gesture. Again, she stamped her foot. And again, raging across the bedchamber. 
Damn him, damn him, damn him. Stilgar gone over to the rebels and Ganema with him. Erolian too, damn them all. Her stamping foot encountered a painful obstacle descending on the meadow. Pain brought a cry from her and she peered down, finding that she'd bruised her foot on a metal buckle. She snatched it up, stood frozen at the side of it in her hand. It was an old buckle, one of the silver and platinum originals from Caledon, awarded only by the Duke Leto Atreides I to his swordsmaster, Duncan Idaho. She'd seen Duncan wear it many times, and he'd discarded it here. Alia's fingers clutched convulsively on the buckle. Idaho had left it here when... When... Tears sprang from her eyes, forced out against the great Fremen conditioning. Her mouth drew down into a frozen grimace, and she sensed the old battle begin within her skull, reaching out to her fingertips, to her toes. She felt that she had become two people. One looked upon these fleshy contortions with astonishment. The other sought submission to an enormous pain spreading in her chest. The tears flowed freely from her eyes now, and the astonished one within her demanded curiously, Who cries? Who is it that cries? Who is crying now? But nothing stopped the tears, and she felt the painfulness which flamed through her breast as it moved her flesh and hurled her onto the bed. Still, something demanded out of that profound astonishment. Who cries? Who is that? By these acts, Leto II removed himself from the evolutionary succession. He did it with a deliberate cutting action, saying, To be independent is to be removed. Both twins saw beyond the needs of memory, as a measuring process, that is, a way of determining their distance from their human origins. But it was left to Leto II to do the audacious thing, recognizing that a real creation is independent of its creator. He refused to reenact the evolutionary sequence, saying, That, too, takes me farther and farther from humanity. He saw the implications in this, that there can be no truly closed systems in life. The Holy Metamorphosis by Hark al There were birds thriving on the insect life, which teemed in the deep sand beyond the broken quanet. Parrots, magpies, jays. This had been a Jadida, the last of the new towns, built on a foundation of exposed basalt. It was abandoned now. Ganema, using the morning hours to study the area beyond the original plantings of the abandoned siege, detected movement and saw a banded gecko lizard there had been a Gila woodpecker earlier, 
nesting in a mud wall of the Jadida. She thought of it as a siege, but it was really a collection of low walls made of stabilized mud bricks surrounded by plantings to hold back the dunes. It lay within the Tanzarift, 600 kilometers south of Sehaya Ridge. Without human hands to maintain it, the siege already was beginning to melt back into the desert, its walls eroded by sandblast winds, its plants dying, its plantation area cracked by the burning sun. Yet, the sand beyond the shattered quanet remained damp, attesting to the fact that the squat bulk of the wind trap still functioned. In the months since their flight from Tabur, fugitives had sampled the production of several such places made uninhabitable by the desert demon. Ganima didn't believe in the desert demon, although there was no denying the visible evidence of the Quanit's destruction. Occasionally, they had word from the northern settlements through encounters with rebel spice hunters, a few thopters. Some said no more than six carried out search flights seeking Stilgar, but Arrakis was large, and its desert was friendly to the fugitives. Reportedly, there was a search-and-destroy force charged with finding Stilgar's band, but the force, which was led by the former Tabrite Buer Agarvis, and other duties, and often returned to Arakin. The rebels said there was little fighting between their men and the troops of Alia. Random depredations of the desert demon made home guard duty the first concern of Alia and the Nibs. Even the smugglers had been hit, but they were said to be scouring the desert for Stilker, wanting the price on his head. Stilker had brought his band into the Dejida just before dark the previous day following the unerring moisture sense of his old Fremen nose. He had promised they would head south for the Palmeries soon, but refused to put a date on the move, although he carried a price on his head which once would have bought a planet. Stilker seemed the happiest and most carefree of men. Thanks for listening to the Dead Authors Society. Be sure to follow for more content posted several days a week.